Well, as I said earlier, we're wrapping up our 30 days series. I've listened to Pastor Bob talk about three things that should be really important to us if we were to be able to choose how to live for 30 days. He spoke about living passionately, about loving and demonstrating that love through our willingness to forgive others, and about the importance of being humble. And today we're going to wrap up that series by talking about leaving boldly. And no, I'm not talking about leaving St. Paul or leaving church today. We're talking about leaving a legacy, about leaving boldly when we go on to our eternal home. And that's a downer. Nobody wants to talk about that day when we leave this earth. It can be a little frightening. It can make our loved ones sad. But we have to realize that what we do in this world today will be remembered by folks. It will be a legacy for better or for worse. As I reflect on the people who have influenced me the most in my life, many of them were people I love deeply. But I have also been influenced in my life by people who did not demonstrate the love of Jesus Christ. And they left a lasting impression. It was a type of legacy. So what I hope we'll learn today is that when time comes for us to leave this earth, we will leave something behind. And what we leave is a matter both of God's grace that pours out on us and upon our own choices. The Apostle Paul understood this, and he shared words with the church at Corinth. Words about what they would leave and what they would build. So I'm going to read to you this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. Too often in our individual lives and even in our church life, we try to build a foundation based on the things that we think are correct or right or what we believe. And we forget that the foundation we need to build upon was already given to us as the Son of God, Jesus Christ. That's our foundation, and that's what Paul is telling us. And then, to add to that, church builders through the centuries have built upon that foundation like courses of stones being added to a concrete slab. Some of those builders were the early apostles, people like Paul, who we just heard from, and people like Peter. And we think about Peter's life and we wonder how he ever reached the point where he became a great church builder. After all, he denied Jesus. He was weak and frail, just like us. 
And yet because Jesus forgave him and commissioned him once again to be the rock upon whom the church would be built, that's exactly what Peter became. The timid guy who said, I don't know him, spoke out boldly. And by speaking boldly, he left a legacy of courage and faith that reminds us that we need to be perseverant through the times that are difficult. I'd like to share with you some of the words that we find that Peter spoke in the book of Acts. After Jesus had ascended to heaven, after Pentecost, Peter was like a new man. Peter wasn't afraid of anything. He and another apostle had healed a man who was crippled. And it didn't make the religious leaders happy. The very religious leaders who had pushed to have Christ crucified. And they dragged Peter before him, before them, and this is what he had to say. He said, filled with the Holy Spirit, rulers and elders of our people, we are being questioned today because we've done a good deed for a crippled man. Do you want to know how he was healed? Let me clearly state to all of you and to all the people of Israel that he was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, the man you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. For Jesus is the one referred to in the scriptures where it says the stone that you builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Now that was bold. And a few years later, after continuing to be bold in his speech and his proclamation that Jesus Christ is Lord, Peter would in fact lose his life, crucified upside down. Peter learned to speak boldly, and because of it, we read his words in the Acts of the Apostles and in two letters that he left. He gained courage, and he did the right thing in the face of opposition, and that's part of what we are called to do. We are called to be the light and speak the truth in the face of opposition. At times, we might wonder, what role could possibly be left for me? The church has been around now for 2,000 years, but we know if we read church history that the church has not always built well. And there have been times when pieces of what the church built needed to be dismantled. The Crusades. In the Civil War, when the church divided. Times when Protestantism began and people were persecuted. There are times when some of what's been built needs to be torn down. And this is what Peter tells us our role is in that process. And he wrote this in 1 Peter. This is what he said. You are coming to Christ, who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. And you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you, you and I, you are his holy priests. So if we're going to be stones that are used to build a spiritual temple, first of all, we have to recognize that those stones, in fact, are spiritual stones. It's not about the brick and mortar. 
No one wanted us to discover it the way we have been discovering that in the last few months. But we are gathering together and worshiping and proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ and praising God with our praise team and through recorded songs of our choir. We're doing all that while you are at home. And every one of your homes has become that spiritual temple. That's the legacy we're called to build. We're called to share the gospel message, to reflect Christ's example that we read about in the scriptures, to be servants of the people in our community, to help make their lives better and help them to know Jesus. But what we build will be tested, just as it's being tested now with worshiping virtually. You're tuning in. Maybe you're really paying attention. Maybe you're kind of puttering around your house a little and semi-tuning in. But what we're doing here is building community with people who haven't worshipped before and they're worshipping with us now online. Our numbers online have been higher than they've been here in the sanctuary. We're being tested and we're bearing fruit. Economic hard times test us. Many people are unemployed right now or we're are working reduced hours. It's tough. So we're called on to share, to be generous, to not be greedy about what we have. What we build will speak for itself. What people see will matter much more than what we say. It's our actions that will speak into the lives of others. And that's what needs to be our focus. The quality of our legacy will be judged by the church that continues to be built by our children. How the next generations become the church and continue to build, that will be a product of our legacy. How our neighbors' lives are lived out in community with us will be part of our legacy. We will be judged by the number of people who come to Jesus because they look at us and want some of what we have. But we'll also be judged by how we respond to changes that are needed in our society. And I'm going to turn to a tough subject right now, and I'm going to ask for your grace. Don't turn away, please. Hear me out. There are things that we need to recognize about the church and the segregation we find within it. There are things that we need to understand about what happens in our society that are products of fear and pride and hypocrisy and intolerance. And if the church is silent in the face of those things, there are people out there who will believe we're silent because we think it's okay. And it's not. Jesus was a man who crossed the powerful he crossed the powerful and was sent to the cross. Not long ago, we had the horrible opportunity to watch a man die right before our eyes. A knee was placed on his neck for eight or nine minutes as he pleaded, I can't breathe, and he called for his mother, and he died. And in the wake of that death, Outrage has risen across our land. 
Sometimes the outrage was channeled into marches that were peaceful, and sometimes those marches turned into something else. And I'm not condoning the something else today, but I am suggesting that we live in a society that leads to that because of its inequality. And we need to recognize the role that we contribute to that unrest, that frustration, and that violence. Last Sunday, when church was over, this, uh, this rule-following girl who was a Girl Scout during Vietnam, who was in ROTC in college when we couldn't even wear uniforms on campus, because it was in the aftermath of the Vietnam War, this rule-following girl walked into March in Tampa with the people of Black Lives Matter. Please keep hanging on with me. I witnessed grief and frustration and anger. I heard language that I don't approve of and that made me uncomfortable. I saw policemen behave with restraint and not respond. I saw people pour out frustration and I was humbled. I was humbled by being a follower of the leaders of that march. Sometimes for us who like to lead, being a follower is a hard thing. I realized that day that I could never walk in the shoes of the brothers and sisters with whom I was walking. I would never understand what their lives were like because when people look at me, their gut reaction isn't to be afraid. I came back to church, and on Tuesday, we had, uh, we had a staff meeting online using Zoom, and I shared that experience with my brothers and sisters on the staff. And I read a scripture to them because I wished the scripture was true. The fact is, the scripture would be true if we would live into it. And these, once again, are words of the Apostle Paul when he was writing to the church at Galatia. This is what he said, and these words will probably be familiar to you. He said, So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. There nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's the vision, I think, that God has for us. That there would be neither slave nor free. And while we may not have plantations today, we do have people who are enslaved by poverty, enslaved by lack of opportunity, enslaved by intolerance and misjudgment. And as I shared this information and my experience with our staff, I asked them, I said, is there anybody here who has anything they'd like to share, anything that they'd like to respond with. And one, in one of the holiest moments I have ever experienced since coming to St. Paul, Dr. Robert Williams, our traditional worship leader, some of you who uh, normally worship at 10.30 might not know him, but you're going to get a chance to hear from him now because he shared some things with us 
about the life experience he has that's different from the life experience most of us had. And it was one of the most humbling and holy moments I've ever been blessed to know. Dr. Williams, will you share with us now, please? <clears throat> Thank you, Pastor Pam. Good morning. Uh, at our staff meeting on Tuesday, uh, the first thing that I wanted them to realize is that in order to put this beast down, we have to first acknowledge that racism and ro racial profiling does indeed exist. Uh, I know this because I have had to carry this in one way or another for my entire 55 years at different stages of it, beginning as a child in Newberry, South Carolina, when a group of my friends, two or three of them, and I rounded up for no reason, actually taken to the police station and questioned as routine. This is as a child. So you learn early on that there's a different standard for you. This double standard exists today. Even as a college student in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, several instances that I could tell you about. As a graduate student in South Carolina, one particular instance uh, on uh, late night, most of you uh, might remember that my background is primarily classical music, opera, oratorio, cantata, etc. On the way home, one late night after an opera rehearsal. We were living in Fayetteville, North Carolina at the time. I was returning from an opera rehearsal in Raleigh, North Carolina, a little more than an hour's drive. On a rural road, uh, pulled over by a county deputy because it looked, or I looked like I might be out drinking and driving. Now, why did that look like that? Because I was driving erratically? No. Because he happened to pull next to me and look at me? Probably. Even wanted to inspect the water bottle next to me. To be sure. This is real. While we don't see it as overtly as we used to, it still exists. I'm aware of the fact that Jim Crow is dead, but I'm also aware of the fact that his grandson, Jim Crow III, is alive and well. That incident in South Carolina as a child, that's Jim Crow III. That deputy pulling me over like that, that's Jim Crow III. Or today, in 2020, not 1920, today, if I go in a store, and when I go in a store, in the mall, undercover security begins to follow me immediately. Now, why is that? Because I'm a traditional worship leader at St. Paul? I don't think so. They don't know that about me. 
or maybe it's because I went to graduate school at the University of South Carolina, and those Gamecocks are so radical. I don't think so. He doesn't know that about me. On morning walks prior to COVID-19, if I'm going one way on the sidewalk and a white lady is coming the other way on the same sidewalk, she makes it her business to cross the street. Why is that? Because I'm the grandfather of two beautiful little girls? I doubt it. She doesn't know that about me. Or maybe when I'm on an elevator going up or down, and I'm the only one on there, and as uh, another white lady, and this has happened on several occasions during my life, the doors open, she begins toward the elevator, see that I'm the one on it, and backs up. Why is it that she's so afraid to get on that elevator with me? Because I sing in church every Sunday? I doubt it. She does not know that about me. The double standard is real. And just like any addiction that we suffer from, alcoholism, drug abuse, no matter what it is, the first step in recovery is to admit that it exists. Once we do that, we can move forward. When you hear a so-called conservative journalist making comparisons like this, LeBron James makes a political statement. Anybody who makes $100 million a year playing basketball should not be making political statements. Keep your political opinions to yourself. Shut up and dribble her actual words to him. Drew Brees makes a political statement. Oh, he has a right to say whatever he can, and he ought to be left alone to say that. No mention of his salary, which is also in the millions. Why is that? Because LeBron James plays basketball and Drew Brees plays football? I don't think so. In her mind, Drew Brees deserves a salary like that. That's the difference. That is Jim Crow III when you hear that. When you hear a politician threatening to release vicious dogs on innocent protesters, that's a throwback to Bull Connor. That is Jim Crow III. You having some trouble remembering Bull Connor? Go ahead and look him up, okay? You'll remember, it won't take long for you to recognize that if the devil ever had a right-hand man, it was Bull Connor and people like that. This exists today, not as overt, but it is here. We must get over this or we will never be able to move forward properly as a country. We will no longer be looked to as the moral leaders of the world. We must put this down. So today, after sharing this with you,
I ask that you pray for the redemption of the souls who think like that. It's a cancer. It has to be put down. God bless you. I don't have too much to add after that. It would lessen what we've just heard. But I do want to share with you that um, this is a discussion we need to have as a church so that we can be a church that helps bring about change that is so badly needed. Toward that end, this Wednesday, Pastor Bob on his Wednesday at one time on Facebook will have as his guest our district superintendent, Reverend Dr. Candace Lewis, who has much that she can teach us. Our cabinet and our bishop have also published words that they want all of us who are United Methodists in Florida to hear, and I'm not going to read the full text of their uh, statement, but I would like to read parts of it to you today. You can read the entire statement on our webpage, but this is part of what they said. Racism is a sin and is blatantly incompatible with Christian teaching. As Jesus' people, we begin with the knowledge that all persons are created in the image of God, and we believe that all lives won't matter until black lives matter. We repent of our individual and collective sins of omission and commission, particularly our silence, and when we have not actively worked for racial justice. You know, the words black lives matter, when you say those words today, it's like throwing a match into gasoline. And I don't say them to be incendiary. I say them to remind us then, when God first created humanity, before the fall, before sin entered in, he created all of us, male and female, in God's own image. It was sin that corrupted that image and caused us to not love one another, to harm one another, to be greedy and jealous about one another. But Paul's words, there is no slave or free, and the statement, black lives matter, needs to be a reminder to us that yes, Yes, God wants us to treat all lives like they matter. But until we treat black lives and brown lives and red lives and yellow lives like they matter as much as white lives, there is a reason for a people to cry out to God that black lives matter. <laughs>